Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton senior Tiger Gao, and today we continue our special coverage titled Aspiring Intellectuals, where we uh, interview people uh, from quantum physics to social uh, psychology about more foundational concepts and have more longer, harder theoretical questions uh, about uh, their research. And I'm very excited to welcome Matt Weinberg today to the show. He is an assistant professor uh, of computer science at Princeton University. His primary research interest is in algorithmic mechanism design. So auction design, cryptocurrency, voting system, and all so on. So uh, really, really impactful and interesting work. So Matt, thanks so much for being here with us. Yeah, thank you for uh, inviting me to join. I'm excited to chat. Uh, and co-hosting the show with me is my friend, Seyan Raghavan. He is a senior in the math department uh, here at Princeton. He has done research in theoretical computer science and machine learning, uh, a very brilliant friend of mine, and also uh, helping helping me get through some of the, the uh, harder components of Matt's research. So thanks so much for being here with me, Seyan. Thanks for having me, Tiger. I'm looking forward to this. Uh, Matt, so maybe we can uh, start with, you know, uh, again, uh, as our tradition goes, uh, very broad questions of basically who you are uh, and what your research interests may be. Sure. Um, so uh, uh, I'm Matt Weinberg. I've been at Princeton um, as faculty for four years now. I joined in um, January 2017. Um, I, uh, before that, I was a grad student at MIT, um, an undergrad at Cornell. Um, and uh, professionally, so research-wise, um, like Tiger said, my main research area is called algorithmic mechanism design. And the way I like to describe that succinctly is any time that you design algorithms that interact with strategic people. Um, so one example I would give that's maybe uh, related you know, to um, more students is, Anytime you go through and pick your dorm rooms at the beginning of every year, um, that in some sense, it's an algorithmic problem. So everyone has some preferences over dorms. There's in uh, all cases I'm aware of, there's an algorithm, not a human who goes through and matches everyone to dorms. Um, but you have to consider when designing your algorithm that every student wants to get um, you know, dorms that they like best. And so coming up with an algorithm that um, is, for example, not manipulable by clever students or that satisfies some uh, fairness properties or something like that. Um, that would be an example of a kind of problem from my research area. That particular problem is not one um, that I've worked on myself, but that's a good representative problem, I would say, for what algorithmic mechanism design is about. Great. Thanks very much for that, Matt. So maybe we'll, we can write on that example for a bit longer. So when you say not manipulable in a situation like that, what exactly are you talking about? Sure. Um, so uh, we have um, uh, all sorts of uh, formal definitions for what we might mean um, when we study theoretical properties of this. Um, let me just try to give a, a few examples. So um, one of the stronger ones is we have a notion that we call uh, incentive compatible or truthful. And so what we would mean by that is we would say um, a uh, dorm allocation procedure is incentive compatible if as a student participating, there is never any reason you would ever benefit by um, lying about your preferences over dorm rooms. Um, so for example, you could imagine a, um, a dorm allocation algorithm that asks students, here's the list of available dorms, please uh, rank them in the order that you would like them. And you could imagine that maybe it's the case that depending on what the other students do, 
if you um, lie, then maybe you'll wind up with a better dorm. Um, and so I can actually give you a very quick example. So this is one that I do in one of the first uh, first few lectures in um, the undergrad course I teach. Um, you could imagine, uh, here's the following procedure that sounds very good at the beginning. Um, so you ask every student something like, uh, please rank all the dorms. And then I'm gonna go through in random order and give as many people as I can their first choice. So I'll go through in random order and if your first choice dorm is still available, I'll give you that. And then I say, okay, I did as well as I could for the first choice, now I'm gonna go through to second choice. And you go through and you give as many students as you can in random order their second choice, you do this for third choice and so on. And um, the problem with this is you can imagine if you're a strategic student and you think, man, my first choice dorm is super popular. I'm really nervous that uh, there's only like 10 slots and there's a thousand students then probably I'm not gonna get it. And I bet that a lot of students are gonna rank this first, but my second choice storm is also competitive, but I think it's not gonna be quite so competitive. So I really wanna get ahead of the game and try to snag my second choice storm while everyone else is still fighting for the first one. And that reasoning makes sense. And in practice, that could actually be a really good idea to do. But there are other dorm allocation procedures that uh, don't have this property where no matter how clever you are, the best thing you can do for yourself is just to um, accurately report your preferences. So I would say that is uh, truthful or incentive compatible is the term we would use for that. Matt, so I am the economics major here and I've only taken like two computer science classes. So I guess uh, for, for me, just standing on the sideline trying to understand this, um, could we sort of think of mechanism design uh, as the process uh, to figure out the, the environment or the rules based on which uh, agents would be sort of most incentivized to, to make the right choices or reveal their preferences in the most uh, uh, suitable way. So, so uh, Seon was telling me about game theory versus uh, reverse game theory. So game theory would be the process where agents, uh, what they should do in a given environment, whereas the mechanism design is about you, you design the environment and how that should be a, a structure. And that is basically what you study. Yeah, I think that's uh, perfect. I would not change any of the words you said. I think that's a perfect, <laughs> that's a perfect way to describe it. Um, yeah, I don't have anything to add. I think that's a perfect way to think of um, mechanism, design. mechanism design. I would say maybe the, the only thing I would add, so I think from a, um, uh, as a computer, so that's what I would say if I was talking to an economist, I would say, you're probably familiar with game theory. Let me explain how mechanism design is different from game theory. If I was talking to a computer science student who hadn't taken economics, I might say, you're used to algorithm design. Let me tell you how mechanism design is different from algorithm design. And that's what I was trying to say before that sort of like, it's not just algorithms, but algorithms that might be manipulated. So I think both perspectives are important and depending on whether you're more familiar with algorithm design or game theory, then either of you can be more helpful. So, so since we are on the topic of economics and, and computer science, you teach a very popular class at Princeton, Computer Science 445, Economics and Computing. A lot of our friends have taken it and that, that seems to be at the intersection of trying to have a lot of interdisciplinary dialogues about mechanism design and so on. And as you mentioned, a lot of economists do study mechanism design. So perhaps we could talk a little bit just from your perspective, how your work differs from a Princeton economics professor, say. Good, great question. Um, so I would say the, sorry, I'm about to sneeze. Okay, <laughs> went away, sorry. Um, so, okay, so I would say the, I thought it was about to sneeze. The biggest difference is um, I think a typical economist might think very hard about the game theory 
or very hard about the behavioral modeling. And then they might restrict themselves to settings where the algorithmic component is not too complex. And the reason for that is that you really want to understand when you have a, a clever model of um, how people will behave. I really want to understand how they interact. And you just can't do that if you put them in this super complex environment with all these, with a complicated algorithm and all these bizarre rules. So I think it's an oversimplification, but that's what I would say is more on the economic side for mechanism design. And then um, I would say what I would do and what is more represented in the computer science community is I think very hard about the algorithm design. And then I have a little bit of economic game theoretic modeling. So I say like a pure computer scientist would say like, I'm just gonna assume everyone tells the truth because you know, like that's, you know, like 50 years ago, the input was, I don't know, just whatever the, like you controlled the input, you control the entire computer. That's where you get everything from. It doesn't make sense to think about the computer lying to you. Um, and uh, I try to go just a little bit beyond that and say sort of like, let's assume that the humans are rational. Let's assume that they have a clearly defined objective function. And let's just accommodate a little bit of game theory into our algorithms to make sure that they don't obviously fail for this reason. And so that's what I would say. It's an oversimplification, but that's what I would say is maybe the biggest difference. So I normally take models from economists. So I don't, for the most, it's not uh, fully true, but for the most part, I don't um, design my own models. I like trusting economists who have, who are experts in this stuff. They come up with their um, models of behavior. And then we take those models and we try to do advanced algorithm design with the simpler models, I would say. Very dangerous to be following economists these days, Matt. <laughs> <This is>, uh... <laughs> yeah. So, Sayon, do you have something to ask, follow up uh, with on this? Um... Yeah, so I'm curious, when you take things from economics, so often like economists, I mean, I'm not an economist, so I don't know that much about it, but usually they're reasoning about kind of very complex systems that have a lot of moving parts that I would imagine might be hard to theoretically analyze. So do you ever find yourself in a situation when you kind of have to simplify it down even a little bit further to make it amenable to analysis? And if so, how do you reason about what the right simplifications are to make because you want to retain, you want to retain like what makes the economic setup interesting, but then also make it possible to analyze? Um, really good question. So, um... I would say there's two, so this applies to both economics and computer science. I would say there's two kinds, again, an oversimplification, there's two kinds of research. Um, the one that I don't do as much is like, you're designing an algorithm and you literally expect someone to code up this algorithm and use it. Or you're, you know, like uh, designing a dorm allocation, like you're, you're going to design that or you're building a market for healthcare, or you're designing a cryptocurrency, or whatever it is you're doing, you're actually designing it, and you think it's literally going to be coded up or implemented in practice. And in that case, you have to get all the details right. So like, you can't, you know, you can't have a simplified model of human behavior, you need to know what the humans are going to do. And it's okay if you have a messy model, but you, you know, plug in and you do your messy math and you get some answer and it works, then that's all fine. So I'd say that's the stuff that I do um, less of. I would say that's not my uh, competitive advantage is that kind of research. 
the stuff that I do, the term I started using for it, I think of as more like consulting for application domains in the sense that the thing that I try to be really good at is I want to get like one key insight um, or two key insights or a small number of key insights per project and say like, ah, here's one interesting thing about um, dorm allocation. So I might say that the students have preferences, the dorms don't have preferences, and there's some uh, maybe constraints on say the size of the dorms and the um, students also want to live with uh, their friends. They don't just want like, you know, their preferences depend on where their friends are living. And I might say, yes, there's more to it. Like, yes, I might have really complicated preferences that maybe I want to live with one friend in one dorm, but if I can live with a different friend, I want to live in a different dorm, or maybe I have super complicated preferences, but I don't need to model that. I would say, I just want to get some intuition or some key insight about how does the fact that I care about who I live with, how does that impact the process of designing an algorithm? Or um, the stuff that I do um, in auction design, I might say, I want to get intuition for, um, you know, like, uh, when does it make sense to, if you have lots of items to sell, when does it make sense to try and sell each item one at a time? Or when does it make sense to try and bundle them together and uh, sell them as a package? Um, so I would say, again, so the way that I like to think of it is like, oh, can I get one key insight or two key insights to things like this? Even though in practice, you're selling lots of different items, maybe there's like, um, I don't know, like you can even price discriminate based on demographics of who you're selling to, or you can price discriminate based on geographics of who you're selling to, and you can, um, there's a temporal aspect, like you can change your price over time. And I would say all that stuff is super relevant. And if you're an engineer and you're actually doing this, you have to care about that stuff. Um, but what I'm trying to do is just provide sort of like, I think of myself again, like a consultant, I want to provide one key insight at a time. And so I like to think that people who are aware of my research are better engineers, but I don't think of myself as like doing the engineering myself, if that makes sense. So just to continue with that, it seems like a lot of the, a lot of the work in this area is kind of predicated on people acting in some kind of rational way. And in particular, that means that people are often, you often expect people to behave in exactly a certain way under certain conditions, which isn't like reflective of what happens in real life. So like when you design a system that's trying to fulfill a certain set of axioms really well, uh, is it possible to like fail to account for the humanity of the participants in that system? And like, how do you think about that? Yeah, so that is a really good question. Um, I, have, I have all sorts of thoughts on that. So I'll try to streamline them into uh, uh, one at a time. So I would say the high level, my high level approach to problems like this. Um, maybe let me describe the thought process I have coming from a computer science perspective or an algorithm designer perspective is I might say I start from, let me design an algorithm and let me assume that everyone's just going to tell me the truth and give me the input that I want that would make it easiest. And let me think through what would happen in that case. And most likely, you know, if there's economics involved, that's probably a disaster. And so then I think, okay, so let me make a formal model that kind of explains what went wrong. And I would say, here's my first, my simplest formal model is that the um, humans who are participating have a clearly defined objective function. 
they're fully rational, they try to try to optimize that. And now let me design algorithms subject to that. And then um, maybe that mostly works, or maybe that's still a disaster. And then if that's still a disaster, I would want to understand why was that a disaster? And then I would try to tease out what was kind of like one key difference or like one key issue that went wrong. And then maybe someone would say, oh, you know what the problem is? Your algorithm is randomized and the participants, they're not, uh, they're not risk neutral or they don't behave with respect to probabilities the way that you modeled them. And I would say, ah, okay, that's interesting. And then I would think, can I come up with a different formal model for um, how people would interact with randomness? Or maybe I would say, you know, um, maybe that just means we can't use we can't use randomization. We have to have something deterministic. But I would go back and I would talk through and I would say, you know, what's the right um, what's the right like crisp formal concept that explains what I assumed previously and that I got wrong? And then I would kind of go back and redesign and then say, here's my new key insight. So previously, when I thought it was okay to do this, this is what I said. Now I understand why that was bad. But now I have a new key insight that can at least address this one issue. And, but I do think of that as an iterative process. So um, again, like using as an example, I think I am not the, my style of research is not the right kind of research for someone to walk up and be like, hey, can we, you know, can you design a new cryptocurrency? And I would, you know, you can ask me to do that. That might be fun, but I don't think that my style of research is gonna produce that. But I do think the style of research would be like, hey, we have a cryptocurrency and uh, it's not working. I would say, what's wrong? And I say, well, we thought that the miners would do this, but they're doing something else instead. And then I would talk, I'd say, why is that? Why is that? Why is that? And I'd say, ah, now I understand. The reason the miners are doing this instead of that is because of this. So now we can make, we can make a model out of that. We can you know, design, um, you know, we can solve that problem theoretically. I can go back to them and say, here's what you know, I would propose, or here's an insight I got for thinking about this one specific problem. And then maybe that solves the problem, or maybe it doesn't solve the problem, but there's another discussion that says, here's the new insight that's missing or something like that. Um, so that I would say is my main response. And uh, I have a second thought, but I wanna do a full stop after that to say that's like one coherent thought. Um, I don't know if I should let you ask a question or let someone else speak for a second, but I have another thought. No, please so, feel okay. free to go for it. So, yeah. Yeah, so my second thought is just that um, inevitably, at the end of the day, I would say that, uh, like I said, my first goal is to produce like um, usable insights or interesting insights or something like this. And I would just say it's very possible to produce those insights while not having a perfect model. Um, and so I, so I would say in some sense, sort of like having a perfect model is nice for some reasons but um, it's not a prerequisite to producing useful insights. And similarly, I would even say at the very basic level, there are um, some algorithms that are running in practice that are you know, not truthful and not incentive compatible and people are manipulating them and it's okay. <laughs> and you know, like uh, that sometimes turns out to be okay. And it doesn't, um, I would say in that case, there might not even be an explicit model of what they think people are doing, some, sometimes things just work out. Um, you know, I would, I would still say that's, uh, you should always try to understand why things are working, if they're working, and you should understand why things are not working if they're not working. But um, I just wanna say sometimes it's very possible to produce useful systems. It's very possible to produce useful insights, even if your model is not perfect. Um, 
But I just want to, again, endorse the iterative procedure of understand what's wrong, really nail it down to like one key insight, solve it one key insight at a time, rather than trying to like, you know, like do everything all at once that uh, sometimes that can, um, or at least my style of research is, is uh, not so much like that. So just to kind of put the things you've said in perspective with a concrete example, one of my favorite lectures from your class um, on economics and computing was the one on timing consistent planning. <laughs> because it made me feel better about all my procrastination. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so maybe you can walk us through that a little bit. Sure. Um, so that is a, uh, yeah, so I can, I can uh, walk through that story. So that's um, a good story. So that I first heard about, um, I saw a talk by John Kleinberg, who was actually uh, one of my professors when I was an undergrad um, at Cornell. And he started the talk by telling us about um, uh, this work of a, a Nobel Prize winning economist. And um, he said, oh, he you know, noticed that he procrastinated and he thought that this was odd because this is a guy who's about to win a Nobel Prize in economics, a super smart and super rational. He studies rationality you know, for his living and procrastination in a very real sense is like not rational. Right. That, you know, he said uh, specifically the story was he had to, um, you know, like mail this package um, back home. And it was a, you know, it's a big ordeal where he was to, you know, find some place to send the package. And uh, every as soon as he sent the package, it could be used at home. So that would have been great. And whatever day he went to mail it, it was, you know, it was going to cost him the same. And uh, like most for, you know, whatever students are listening. You might imagine he wound up mailing it on like uh, apparently the last day he was there, or I think actually uh, the way John told the story, eventually his friends felt bad for him and just mailed the package for him. Um, so it got that bad. But, uh, you know, the idea is just that that was in some sense very irrational, that everyone would have been happier, including um, him, including everyone involved, if he just mailed it on the first day. And so uh, what he did was he developed a theory to try and explain um, his own uh, mindset. And uh, maybe I won't get into exactly um, what the theory is, but basically there is a theory that explains the thought process that humans go through when we um, procrastinate. Um, and I would say how that gets used from there is that now you have a clear mathematical model. Does it perfectly capture uh, how humans behave? Definitely not, for, absolutely not. Um, but does it do? Does it add nice insight as to why do people who are otherwise extremely rational procrastinate? Certainly does. And um, then what you can do, and there have been papers that do this, is you can ask questions like, oh, what if people who behave according to this model, what if they interact with each other? Then does that explain some other phenomena that we see? And you can ask other questions like, oh, um, so you might say, if I'm trying to design a course, and I want to um, make it, say, as uh, low stress as possible for the students, then how should I set up deadlines so that the students have the right amount of flexibility, but also aren't tempted by, you know, their behavior according to this model to just put everything off until, you know, Dean's date or something. And so I think you can, so then once you have a model, you can start to ask design questions um, like this. And again, I would phrase it as sort of like, uh, can you gain insight for things like this? Like what are good design principles for designing a course, knowing that the people participating in it are gonna procrastinate? Or what are good design principles if you have to build a system so that multiple 
procrastinating agents are going to interact or something like that. Um, so that's that's maybe a good uh, a good example to have asked me to walk through. If only most professors would think like like you, uh, factoring <laughs> in the procrastination component. Yeah, no, no, Matt, I would be really curious to hear a little bit more. Uh, just, just from your perspective, because um, you mentioned uh, previously that you, you know you're a quote unquote a consultant that you you know uh, try to provide specific insights to to very specific problems to people. Uh, could you tell us a little bit about what are some of the projects you've quote unquote consulted for? Because uh, I think from an when economists talk about uh, market design, a lot of them bring up the the example of like radio spectrum auctions back in like the 1970s or 80s for the FCC, and people would say. Uh, well, sort of what is the best market to incentivize agents to do the best bidding? Is it an auction? Is it a free market? Do free markets sometimes fail? Uh, and so I would love to just sort of hear your thoughts on, on what uh, projects you worked on. Sure. Um, so I think the, the best example I think of those, I think would be some of the work that I do in cryptocurrencies. Um, and so... Um, Bitcoin to the moon, yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I can, uh, I'm trying to think of um, what is the simplest thing I can say without getting into a lot of detail. So let me describe it like this. I think, um, uh, I mean, even Bitcoin itself uh, is relatively new. So it's about a decade old. And what I think is kind of wild is um, it's not literally true that the source code is exactly the same source code that Satoshi Nakamoto wrote you know, like 13 years ago, but the big picture ideas are largely unchanged. So there have definitely been some technical um, upgrades. There were bugs in the initial code that were fixed. And, um, you know, there, 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 are, there are definitely some, some low level changes that have happened. Um, but I think by and large, the, the high level protocol has stayed the same. And there have been all sorts of other um, uh, cryptocurrencies that were built that use um, similar principles, but tweak one parameter or that um, change uh, different design aspects. And so um, I would say that one of the views I've been trying to bring to that community is sort of like, um, there are a lot of design parameters that don't initially seem like they should affect the economics. So initially they seem like, this is just a question of engineering and can we make this work from an engineering perspective? And if we can, then, then that's great. And uh, it's just a, a engineering technical challenge. Um, but a lot of them, uh, kind of like what I've learned by understanding the domain better, are not just technical challenges. They actually really do affect the incentives. I can try to give you one very quick example. I can't explain why uh, in like two minutes, but if we're going to talk about cryptocurrencies in depth later, maybe We'll get yeah, there. we we totally but, should go there, uh, Matt. Okay. Before before we jump in, would you mind just giving us a quick overview of what blockchain technology or, or <laughs> uh, the computing mechanism behind that that is? Just for some of our listeners, maybe they've heard sure. of Bitcoin recently, but they probably don't really know what cryptocurrency really is besides you know Bitcoin because there are so many others. Sure. So um, I will. So just to be super clear, I will give my perspective on what I think are the uh, interesting aspects. And you could ask someone who's a distributed systems person and yeah. they would come at it from a different perspective. An economist might say something different, but so I just want to disclaim that, but this is uh, how I view it. And this is not financial advice, even, even yes, though I shout, <laughs> I shout Bitcoin to the moon. It does not mean. <laughs> absolutely, yes. So if it helps to disclaim, um, as interested as I am in the technical aspects of Bitcoin, I don't invest. 
Um, every year I regret that decision more and more because <laughs> every year I say, if I adjust, if I adjust put in $10,000 when, uh, you know, when I wrote my first paper, $10,000, when I heard about the first paper, um, or when I first learned about Bitcoin, I would be uh, much wealthier um, than I am now. So every year I regret that more and more, but, um, I still don't invest in it. Um, so how I think of, um, cryptocurrencies is really at their core. It's uh, just a protocol to get lots of different people to agree on uh, the terminology they use as a ledger. So really, you can think of it as sort of like you and your friends are getting together and you decide, you know what, um, you know, uh, we buy each other dinner all the time. We buy each other dessert all the time. We um, owe each other money for all sorts of random things. And it's kind of annoying to pull out cash and change every single time. And you might say, I, I don't like the thought of using Venmo. I don't like uh, this you know, owner of Venmo getting, uh, getting some whatever. I don't like my history being recorded uh, to Venmo. And um, you know, so you just say, you know, we're just going to maintain like a IOU between us. And so you have uh, maybe like, uh, if I were to do this with my friends, we'd literally just make like a Google spreadsheet or something, which, which I guess defeats the purpose. Now Google has all our information or whatever. But like we'd make a, a shared spreadsheet. We just write in the information. And the and and what matters is the order in which it's written. That definitely matters, and it also is important. You can look at this uh, ledger of everything that happened, and you can keep track of who owes who how much money. And uh, that's in some sense all that uh, Bitcoin or these cryptocurrencies are trying to do is they're just trying to find a secure way to maintain this ledger in a way so that you don't need to trust. Venmo to do it for you. You don't need to trust PayPal to do it for you. You don't need physical cash and you don't need, um, uh, and, and, and you're not relying on uh, uh, the trust of the people participating to not just like go back and delete things from the Google spreadsheet that you're using. Um, so that's my opinion of kind of like all it's trying to do. So now the question is sort of like, well, how does it do it? So like, what's, what's the magic behind um, Bitcoin that makes it not just a, a more secure Google spreadsheet? Um, and th there's a lot that uh, goes into that that um, constitutes, I guess, for me, an entire lecture in the course I teach. So I won't get into all of that. Um, but I would just say maybe the important things are, um, I would say maybe the important things are just to remember that all the Bitcoin is doing, it all it is doing is storing a ledger. So Bitcoin is not supposed to denote how much value something in Bitcoin is worth. So Bitcoin doesn't, the protocol doesn't care um, how many US dollars someone is willing to pay for Bitcoin. And Bitcoin doesn't care if you go and you buy a car using Bitcoin. Bitcoin doesn't care whether you actually got the car or not. Um, Bitcoin, all it is, all it is, all it is, is a protocol for keeping track of this thing called a ledger. And it's entirely up to society or you or anyone else to decide what you want to do when you see that information. So many businesses right now just say, that's cool that you have this ledger. I don't really care. You have to pay me in US dollars if you want something. And some people say, I think this ledger is super cool. I would pay $10,000 in order for someone to write something to the ledger so that the ledger thinks that I have an additional Bitcoin. And the main thing I just want to emphasize the, the protocol is not responsible for that, or at least the stuff that I'm interested in is not responsible for that. All it is, it's a protocol to maintain um, 
this uh, ordered list, this ledger. Matt, it's really interesting. To, uh, just to quickly go back to one of Seon's yeah. earlier questions, you was asking about how to how you think about modeling some of the human aspects uh, when you think about mechanism design. And I guess a really central mission of blockchain technology was really trying to take away that human aspects because a lot of people say you might not trust when you give your money to the bank or you might not trust the United States government or the Venezuelan government to manage the currency. Uh, so what people do right now is this, uh, everything is on a blockchain. It is uh, not you know, fungible or, or not uh, sort of uh, uh, changeable in, in some way. And there's some kind of consensus mechanism and you can build applications on it called smart contracts such that uh, it can guarantee something being fulfilled uh, rather than relying on even the law or the court or some other a third person to validate certain transactions. So that's sort of where uh, the, the trend has been in the, in the past uh, few years, uh, I, I suppose. Yes. Uh, so, so maybe, uh, I, I guess, it seems that the central tenant of, of cryptocurrency is that it really tries to remove, you know, quote unquote, trust from the financial system. The thinking goes that, you know, right now the value of cryptocurrency is built upon trust in the governments and banks, but with crypto, uh, it can be guaranteed in, in this very nature of the technology. Uh, I guess the, the, a part of the question that Seong and I might be asking is uh, how, why did the price fluctuate so much? How early uh, are we in this, in this stage? What is your perspective of, of what cryptocurrency or this, this community is at, at right now? Sure. Um, so again, I should disclaim, so I'm at a tech, you know, at a distributed systems level, I'm an outsider, I'm not an engineer, blah, 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 stuff like that. Um, but I, I still have an opinion, I'm happy to share my opinion, but you should just, uh, you know, take it with a grain of salt. So um, my take is that I still feel like it's very early. Um, so I think in terms of the technology, um, I, I, I don't think that uh, bit, Bitcoin is a final product. So let me try to elaborate on that a little bit more. So anytime you have, uh, say for instance, uh, laws, so like the US constitution is an example. Um, it's very good for that to be uh, consistent throughout time and for it to change slowly. And the reason for that is that a lot of us adapt our lives based on what the law is. And if the law were to change like, you know, if, if fundamental aspects of the law were to change like every six months or every year, they would drastically impact um, how we're supposed to be living our lives. It would be very hard to plan and stuff like that. And the same thing is true, say for the US dollar, that if the US, if the US government had a reputation for, um, you know, oh, if uh, the economy is bad, we're just gonna rapidly inflate um, the currency or uh, we're going to, I don't know, anytime, I don't know what the examples would be, but if, it, but if it's good, even if people might disagree, and I certainly am, you know, everyone can disagree with something in the constitution or something in other aspects of law or something in US monetary policy, um, I certainly do, but I still appreciate that sort of like, it's good to have stability. So in my view, I would say Bitcoin to me feels like that in that um, it's very stable in the sense that there have really not been many major changes to Bitcoin. Um, over time. And so because of that, it's, uh, it, it's, been, it's been good for that reason. On the other hand, I would say maybe unlike things like the Constitution or the US monetary policy, not a lot of thought went into the initial design. Like it was, it was not done poorly. It's for sure amazing that um, it's able to be as successful as it was with just the initial design. 
But there are a lot of things um, in the initial design that I really think could be done a lot better. Um, and uh, so just like I can just highlight um, one is uh, there's this concept uh, related to Bitcoin called proof of work. So if you've heard of what is Bitcoin mining, Bitcoin mining is literally people buy specialized hardware. There are uh, multi-million dollar companies. I think multi-million, maybe multi-million. Mining farms. Yeah. Yes. And uh, GPUs. What they, yep. And so it's even more advanced than GPUs. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's called uh, uh, ASICs. And it's literally, <laughs> there's companies, they build this hardware. The only thing this hardware is useful for is supporting the Bitcoin um, protocol uh, and other cryptocurrency protocols. And there are mining farms, like you said, that are um, all over the world. And the only thing that happens here is they support the Bitcoin protocol. And there are these stats, like if you, you know, like just Google uh, Bitcoin electricity consumption, uh, that the total amount of electricity that goes into supporting just Bitcoin is uh, like, if, if you were to count that as a country, it would be like one of the top 40 countries in the world. It, it's more so than, much more like, than the Netherlands or something. The, something the, like the this. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So it's like, um, so it's really insane. Now, um, definitely, uh, like, there, you know, there are people who say like, look, you know, like, that's the cost of security. If you want a good, you know, if you want a good system, it's going to cost money, it's going to cost something um, to uh, support it. Um, but in this case, I always think it's still reasonable to ask, you know, is it possible to do better? And I think it's absolutely possible to do better. And there are these related concepts. Uh, the biggest competing one is something called proof of stake where um, in, uh, yeah, I, I'm still not getting into all the details, but yeah. basically um, it is possible to try and have a cryptocurrency-like protocol that doesn't require all this electricity consumption. Now, again, my opinion is that I think the proof of stake protocols are not quite as secure yet as the best proof of work ones, but I think that's an engineering challenge. That's a research challenge for us as a community to be able to catch them up and Currently, I don't see a fundamental barrier that says we can't do it, um, but I do see challenges that the community has maybe not hit yet. Um, and so that's one reason why I would say I don't feel like it's in a finished state. And that's just one thing. There's, there's lots of other things that I think um, uh, can be improved over time. Um, but yeah, well, I, I, would, I would expect, Personally, I would expect kind of cryptocurrencies, I would hope they look different, say, 20 years from now than um, they do right now. Uh, Matt, before we jump in to talk a little bit more about other aspects, and I know Sam wants to ask you something about incentives, <laughs> but before that, just a quick point about a proof of work versus proof of stake. I mean, I, I've also been learning a lot of this recently. It, it seemed that, as you, as you mentioned, proof of work was literally that... Uh, it, I could be wrong, so please feel free to correct sure. me from a pet technical perspective at any time. But it seems that for proof of work to work for for bitcoins, that you you literally need those mining farms to to sort of uh, keep hashing or, or keep adding yep. uh, to to the blockchain, and whoever has the sort of the longest chain uh, ends up uh, uh, sort of being rewarded. Where we're ending 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 up uh, uh, basically that chain would would replace previous chains as the the chain. Uh, but for proof of stake, it's that you would actually stake, meaning you, you would uh, say put in a, a, a few thousand dollars or, or hundreds of thousand dollars worth of Ethereum or, or whatever cryptocurrency mm -hmm. into that. And then say, as I validate 
the, the blockchain as I try to write the next block of the blockchain. I am willing to put the money where my mouth is. And if the consensus agrees with me, I get rewarded. But if the consensus does not re, uh, agree with me, I would actually lose part of my, 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 uh, my stake, uh, which, which hopefully can decrease the electricity cost and make the consensus mechanism uh, much better. And so, so am, I, am I characterizing the, the, the differences? Uh, yeah, so almost? I think, um, yeah, I think that's, actually, uh, that's pretty good. I will offer a different perspective, Please. which is a little bit more like, uh, what is the problem they're both trying to solve? So um, at the core of all these protocols are because there is no central authority. So think like when you have a credit card, you have Venmo, you have PayPal, there's a central authority that says, I'm the authority, I decide what transactions to authorize, and then I add them to this ledger. And because there's no central authority, the protocols, what they do, they try to choose a random participant. And so they say, I want to choose a random participant, and then you are the next authorizer. So this is oversimplification, but if you've heard the term block, that every block has a random person who's charged to authorize the next block. So now here's the hard question. How do you pick someone random? And you say, well, if I'm doing something, say, within my Princeton community, I know all the Princeton students' names. I'm going to pick a random Princeton student and say, you know, like, Tiger, you're the next authorizer. And I'll say, okay, Sian, you're the next authorizer. Matt, you're the next authorizer. But what do you do when one of the entire purposes of Bitcoin was to be, um, these are terms, pseudonymous? So it's not the case that I can look and I can say, ah, like, you know, I know that this, these coins belong to Tiger. This account is Tiger. The whole One of the huge purposes of Bitcoin is that I look at an account, I don't know who owns it. I look at another account, I don't know who owns it. So um, the danger is you say, well, if I, pick a if I pick a uniformly random account, then what I would do, I would just create a bunch of different accounts. And then now, you know, like I would basically control uh, Bitcoin. So the challenge is, go ahead, I see. No, I, I was okay. just, I, I think one of the examples was like if, if Google uses all this computing power to try to do this process, they could literally uh, rewrite the blockchain or something. Or, or... So, so that might, well, okay. So I don't, I don't know the calculations for whether they <laughs> no, 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 yeah, yeah. but it's, uh, it's pop, yeah. And so, but, um, okay. So, so the, so the question then becomes, how do you choose someone kind of at random? And the clever idea behind proof of work is you say, well, Let's pick someone not random, a random ID. Let's pick someone random, but proportional to something that's costly. So he said, you know what's costly? Computational power, that's costly. And so there, it turns out, so there's a clever idea using hash functions, like you said, and uh, there is a clever way to work this into a protocol where it is possible to pick a random participant proportional to their computational power or proportional to their ability to hash. And so what that means is that literally, the more hash power you have, the more likely you are to be chosen to authorize transactions in Bitcoin. And so what that does is it creates this uh, monetary incentive to you buy hash power and or computational power, you use it to hash. And now every time you um, are chosen, you get this, uh, uh, you get rewards for participating in the protocol. And proof of stake uh, said, well, let me think of something else that's costly. Currency itself. That's costly. So let's, instead of picking someone uh, proportional to their computational power, let's pick someone proportional to the amount of currency they own. 
And so, so to uh, make the analogy to what you said, it's exactly the case that I say, oh, I'm going to maybe freeze 10,000 units of currency in uh, this cryptocurrency. And then there's a protocol going on in the background that picks a uniformly random freezed uh, unit and then says, now you're selected, please authorize transactions and update the protocol. And there are other um, concepts. These are the two main concepts right now, but there are other concepts um, that basically say, what is something that is costly to acquire? And can I come up with a clever protocol that picks someone at random proportional to this? So you might say sort of, so the other two concepts, there's proof of space. So there's uh, computations that are, they're called memory hard computations. So they're easy to do if you have a lot of uh, memory on your um, computing infrastructure, and they're hard to do. If you don't have space, then there are computations that, you know, that would take you forever to do. And so by doing these computations, you can prove that you're using space. Um, and there are other, uh, there are other concepts, um, but like you can think of sort of like, oh, uh, maybe something like, uh, you know, like you can say like, oh, it's, uh, it's costly to acquire houses. And you would say, well, but I don't know how to write a protocol that picks a uniformly random house or something like that. Or I don't know, you know, like that seems very hard to code up, but to pick a, you know, to do proportional to computational power proportion to this currency itself. So like proportional to the number of US dollars you own, that's very hard. I don't know a protocol that would do that easily, but proportional to the currency you own in this protocol that we can do and proportional to your um, computational space that we can do, proportional to the physical space you have access to. I don't know what a protocol like that would look like, but that's kind of like the thought process that you think, what is something that is A, costly to acquire, and B, can I come up with a somewhat simple procedure to pick someone uniform or proportional to um, how much of this costly thing they own? So Matt, tying this back to the stuff we talked about you know, 20, 30 minutes ago, what are some of the main issues as far as incentives go that come up with blockchain systems? And how do decisions like whether to use proof of work or proof of stake, proof of stake, sorry, interact with the incentive concerns at play? Really good question. Um, so the, the kind of like fundamental thing about Bitcoin that I find really interesting is Bitcoin sort of says, here's a protocol. And, you know, Bitcoin says, please, if you are mining Bitcoin, please follow the Bitcoin protocol. And if you've heard of this term called the longest chain, so the, that is one name for the Bitcoin, one aspect of the Bitcoin protocol is called the longest chain protocol. And they say, please, if you are mining, please follow the longest chain protocol. That's the Bitcoin protocol. But there's no, there's no amount of cryptography or security or anything that can force you to follow the longest chain protocol. And it's maybe a little bit too technical for me to try and explain exactly why that is, but um, there, there's no way to do that. And so specifically, very specifically, um, so Nakamoto realized this when he was writing his first paper. And so he said, here's what we're gonna do. We're going to, um, every time you authorize a block of transactions, we're going to pay you in new Bitcoin. So this phrase is called the block reward. And so currently, Anytime you successfully authorize a new block of transactions, you get uh, 6.25 Bitcoin when you do that. And, uh, you know, and so, um, where's it going to, and so, so he realized that he needed to do something like this to incentivize people to participate. 
And one thing that got overlooked for a very long time was, you know, like, well, now that there are incentives at play, is it the case that the protocol is incentive compatible? So I used that term earlier. So is it the case that, you know, that as a participant, it is in your interest as a minor, it's in your interest to follow the longest chain protocol? Or is it possible that maybe you can get more rewards by doing something different? And so there was this really um, seminal paper, and this was, I think, the paper that made me realize that there was something interesting here for me to do. Um, so uh, it's, it's colloquially re referred to as a selfish mining paper um, by Ataya uh, Yal and Amin Gwensirer. And they basically showed that um, it turns out that uh, in the Bitcoin protocol, if you have enough computational power, so uh, in their paper, they show that you need uh, at least uh, one third of the total computational power in the entire network, which we just discussed is like a third of the electricity of Netherlands. So it's, it's a lot. But if you have that, then there actually is something better that you can do than following um, this longest chain protocol. And so that got me super interested because I was like, well, this is exactly the kind of stuff that I think about all the time. Bitcoin is a super complicated algorithm and they're talking about fully rational agents and trying to figure out like what would fully rational um, miners do in this really complicated protocol. So I was like, great, I'm diving into this. And so that is the um, kind of angle I've been taking um, with a lot of my own research. So related to, um, Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, Matt, I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit more about uh, the, the progress on that front. Yeah, great. It sounds yeah. fascinating. Yeah, yeah, great. So um, so now I can give a little bit more detail about um, two of the aspects um, that, I, that, that I now think are very relevant to incentives from this perspective, getting people to follow the protocol that don't initially sound like it. Um, so the first paper I worked on in this direction analyzed the following. So I mentioned that when you successfully authorize a block of transactions, you are currently paid with 6.25 new Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is currently inflationary right now and that every 10 minutes, there are 6.25 new Bitcoin created. Now, over time, there's this thing called the halving. So every four years, the 6.25 is cut in half. So it'll be, uh, was it 3. Oh man, oh six two five or whatever, <laughs> and and then uh, four years later it'll be half of that, and uh, eventually it'll be basically zero. So so it's not isn't it limited in twenty one million quantities exactly or something exactly. So um so there's eventually going to be twenty one million Bitcoin, but not all of those Bitcoin have been created yet. Have been mined yet? Exactly. Yes. And so um so I don't know the the number right now. I would. If you asked me to guess, I would guess maybe like 18 million or something like that. Yeah, whereas I think that's the cir current circulation. Exactly. Yeah. And so there's uh, 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 however many left, there's that many left to be created. So when I first started, um, actually, when I first heard about Bitcoin, the block reward was actually 50 Bitcoin um, per block. And then when I first wrote this paper, it was uh, 25. And then, you know, you know so every time there's half. a halving. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Um, and uh, what's expected to happen is they say, well, another way that miners can get paid is if I want my transaction to be included in a block, I can pay a transaction fee. So when I have a transaction that I want to be included in the Bitcoin ledger, I write, oh, I'm Matt, I would like to pay um, Tiger uh, one Bitcoin, and I will also pay a fee of 0.3 Bitcoin to whoever includes this, or point, maybe 0.03. 0.3 is maybe pretty high for that. So. Um, and uh, currently, 
the way the system is even now, but certainly four years ago, the transaction fees were really small and they were kind of like nominal. And the reason was just that um, the, the kinds of transactions that people wanted to include on Bitcoin, there was not so much competition that people were paying super high fees. And on top of that, the block rewards were just huge, right? Like, um, I, I mean, like I, I forget the exchange rate, but the exchange rate at some point has been, you know, like $40,000 for a Bitcoin. And we're talking about 25 Bitcoin per block. So the, the block, you know, th that's a lot. Yeah. And the transaction fees were just very, very small compared to that. Yeah. But over time, the block rewards are going to shrink. And what people are hoping will happen is people will have to pay more transaction fees. And that absolutely needs to happen in order for the system to keep functioning. Because if the miners don't get paid for creating blocks, they're not going to spend their Netherlands of electricity um, <laughs> doing so. Um, so, um, you know, as, okay. And so the question we looked at, so there's a lot of interesting debate on sort of like, oh my gosh, how are we going to make sure that the transaction fees get high? And so there was this big debate. There's this thing called the block size debate within Bitcoin. They were trying to decide whether they want to increase the block size in order to accommodate more transactions or keep it small that would increase the fees. There were other aspects to this debate um, too, but this was uh, independent of the block size debate. Was a, that, That's a big debate. And what uh, uh, me, and so this is a paper I worked on I'm with Arvind um, Narayanan, who's uh, also a professor at Princeton. He's kind of like the guy who really got me um, into this. And then two of his students um, at the time, Miles, Carl uh, Miles Carlson and Harry Kolodner. And we were looking at, well, let's say that you make that work out. So you get, you get the fees to be high. From there, I think the prevailing consensus at the time was like, if you can do that, that's the only problem. You just need to find a way to make sure the fees are high. And we started looking at this and we kind of realized that actually uh, there's other incentive issues just by the fact that you're paid by transaction fees instead of block reward, that that creates new issues. And I can't get into, again, all the technical details, but I can say the one key insight is that the block reward is every single block, you make 6.25 period. So it doesn't make sense to strategize and say, oh, you know, based on how many transactions are in this block, I'll try and do something clever, but I won't do it with the next block because that block is going to be worth more or less. But when you're paid by transaction fees, even if the transaction fees are stable, there's always some variance. So maybe one block you create is going to have like three, it's going to be worth three Bitcoin of transactions. The next one you create might be worth 20 Bitcoin of transactions. Or the next one you create might be worth seven Bitcoin of transactions. And just this fact alone, even if it averages to the same 6.25, this enables more, um, you know, more ways to cheat and more ways to um, get extra money. And it turns out that there is something clever you can do for this. So this was kind of like the theme of the first paper. Um, is this related to the, uh, selfish mining in, in yes. some way? Yep, uh, exactly. So basically, um, I'll throw out a 30 second nugget for people who are familiar with this, but um, if you don't know these terms, it's okay, is um, the, the key behind selfish mining is sometimes when you authorize new transactions, you don't broadcast that to the entire network. And you're hoping that you are going to somehow uh, use this thing that you hid to yourself in order to get, um, to be able to override the longest chain. And there's a risk because maybe you're going to fail. And if you fail, then you lose these block rewards. And so um, very, very high level intuition is if you create a block 
and it only has, say it's only worth like half a Bitcoin because there's just not that many transactions available. Yeah, you should risk that and try to selfish mine because if you lose it, you lost half a Bitcoin. Okay, half a Bitcoin is a lot, maybe you know, 0.05 Bitcoin or whatever. Yeah. Then uh, you lose that, who cares? Uh, if, you, if you succeed, you're gonna get a whole lot more. And so that would be a good thing to do. So I see. That's so, again. So, so for people who aren't familiar with selfish mining, don't stress if you didn't understand the last two minutes. But that's the main idea. So, so basically, each the, the transactions fees that a miner could get from each block depends on the amount of transactions exactly. that are being recorded in that ledger. Because exactly. I, I'm, I'm, it's like I'm a banker, I take a small percentage of the deal, and if the deal is big, I make a lot of money. So exactly, in, in some way, losing a small deal isn't that big of a deal. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> uh, and, and, and selfish mining is basically that a, a, a miner would be incentivized to choose to work on certain uh, transactions and blogs and, and help with the system uh, over others. So basically, the transactions fees could create problematic incentives uh, yes. in, in, in some way. Yeah, that, that's, that's exactly, exactly a, right. A, a, and a way to, exactly yeah. right. And uh, I can also throw out like one um, uh, either disclaimer or reference to something we talked about earlier. We definitely made assumptions in this paper. And so like you can look at this paper and you can say, oh, uh, one thing we did, we assumed in the paper um, that there was no block size limit and uh, that we needed to do in order to make the math we did tractable. And that's not the way Bitcoin works. In Bitcoin, there's a finite block size limit. And what I would say is we did this paper and I would say we really, really, really got one key insight out of it. And I think we understood how robust this key insight is to different modeling assumptions, but absolutely it is not supposed to be like a prediction of this is exactly what's gonna happen um, in Bitcoin. That again, this is a, a clarifying the style of research is we got one key insight and maybe it's okay to ignore it. If you understand why it's not gonna happen for your cryptocurrency, that's fine. Um, but it's one thing that you can kind of be aware of when you're trying to design a cryptocurrency or thinking about what will happen with Bitcoin as the block reward eventually goes away. Uh, Matt, I could talk uh, cryptocurrency with you all day, but I also know <laughs> we, we have limited time. So, so maybe we should also get to other aspects of your fascinating research. But before I do that, I guess just to quickly zoom out and ask you a slightly more philosophical question. So, so at the very beginning, when we defined blockchain, we talked about how uh, the purpose of blockchain technology was a lot of times try to incentivize, you know, the best of human behaviors, try to uh, prevent cheating. Uh, but but it, in, in some way, my, my quick takeaway from our conversation just now seems to be that uh, cryptography and the technology itself seems to be unable to solve a lot of the human incentives to cheat in some way. So we can't root that out completely. So, uh, or, or maybe it could. So I, so I don't know where, where you stand on this issue. Do you look at blockchain technology as, as saying, uh, it's a promising technology, but it will, there will always be some kind of political human nature mm -hmm. factor to this. Or do you look at this as, as saying something like, if we could refine a system, it could really incentivize people to always make a, a better decision down the road. So where do you stand on that? Uh, so uh, I think that is a super, and super, super, super interesting question. Um, so I would say I, have, I haven't yet formed an opinion that I'm gonna stick with till I die. But let me just kind of present the, the two views that I kind of um, respect here. So one of them is very much this like code is law view. And that is very much the view that um, at some point, maybe not Bitcoin as it is right now, maybe not Ethereum as it is right now. At some point, there will be a cryptocurrency 
we will have the source code and we will, for the most part, not update it. And whatever happens in there, that's what happens. And what that provides you is it provides you kind of like um, really strong this like consistency, reliability, you know what you're going to get um, when you do that. And of course, I mean, okay, just to be clear, of course, there'll be bug fixes, there'll be, you know, maybe adjusting parameters, but the idea is that it will be rarely adjusted. And um, I think that is like a very, it, it's, you know, from a philosophical perspective, to me sounds very appealing, right? Because uh, especially, you know, like I work in a technical field, um, I like when things are well-defined. I like when things are precisely defined. Um, and that really, really, really appeals to me. Um, on the other hand, if you want to take that stance, you better account for frigging like everything. Like you really have to account for everything that might happen and be content with that. So um, the other view is that sort of like um, at the end of the day, you're putting your trust somewhere in some human, some human-ish entity. And the question is just, do you prefer to put your trust in the, so for example, Bitcoin right now is updated by these core developers and they're not, you know, like paid by Bitcoin. They're not like a, a company or anything. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a group and no one has to listen to them, right? Like anyone can decide, oh, like the Bitcoin developers agreed and push this change, but I think that's dumb. I'm going to pay attention to this other ledger. You can always do that. Um, and uh, the nature of Bitcoin too is that anyone can copy the source code and right you can you can clone Bitcoin and call it like Tigercoin. Like that's not a technologically um, hard thing to do. You can do that and just say this is my ledger, and uh, someone can decide. Oh, you know, I trust Tiger more than I trust uh, uh, Bitcoin, so I want to go with Tigercoin. Um, and so so the the other view is just to say that no matter what, you're putting your trust in some some kind of human entity. Do you prefer to put your trust in the CEO of Venmo or the US government, or you'd prefer to put your trust in kind of like this decentralized, not super well-defined group, but it's a, it's, a, it's a large group that doesn't have any kind of like official power. Um, so I think that's also an interesting view. And what I would say is that um, the technology behind Bitcoin is allowing us to put trust in types of groups that we did not previously have the technology to put trust in. Um, so I think both views to me make sense. My best guess is that the code is law view has a lot of barriers to making its way into practice. Um, just because like, there are some pretty extreme things that are extremely unlikely to happen. But like, you know, for example, if someone were to launch a major attack on Bitcoin, we would probably just abandon Bitcoin and say, there's a major attack on Bitcoin. The currency is obviously compromised. <laughs> so I'm just going to stop using Bitcoin. Um, wow. But, you know, but like that's, uh, you know, again, unre un 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 extremely unlikely to happen. But the point is that sort of like, um, that's clearly like outside the code is law. We would just say, this code is clearly compromised. I'm just going to stop using it. Um, so I don't know. So I'm a little bit more towards the, in practice, we're putting our trust in some human entity. And the question is just kind of like, what kinds of human entities are good groups to put trust in? And phrasing it like that, I would say Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies 
allow us to put our trust in kinds of groups that we couldn't do with previous technology. Uh, Matt, we really got to start our own coin or something with, with, yeah. with Sam. Let's, let's do our <laughs> cryptocurrency. I mean, it sounds like a brilliant idea out there. I mean, <laughs> yes. after this interview, Tiger and I can go hit the mining farms. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, yes. I really thought about it at Princeton, but I mean, nowadays it's all like run out of GPUs. It's, you can't buy, there's a chip shortage across the globe or something. Mm. Where else? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so, yeah. I was just going to say, it's always uh, always good to have an eye on uh, stuff like that because there's a lot of investor money out there for, yeah. <laughs> for new cryptocurrencies. Yeah, yeah. But perhaps we should change topics. Say, I know sure. you have you have something about voting that you want to uh, talk about. Yeah, yeah. Fascinating discussion on cryptocurrency. But I thought maybe we could shift towards our voting rules for a little bit. So maybe to just kick things off, if you could kind of set the stage for what a voting rule is and what some of the incentive concerns are at play here. Sure. Um, so I would say, uh, so most of the time when, you know, you talk to people who don't study this stuff, you think voting and a lot of people's first reaction is like, well, voting means um, you ask people for their first choice and then you pick the candidate with the most first choice votes. And I would say that is a instance of a voting rule. So what's the, what, so if we back up a second, what's the setup? The setup is just, we have a group of people and we need to choose something. So maybe we need to choose a president. Maybe we need to choose, um, you know, president for the country, president for some council at Princeton. Um, maybe we need to choose like a class representative for, you know, something, or maybe we need to choose something more complicated. Maybe we need to choose um, what project do we want to fund? Or maybe we need to choose, um, you know, like what uh, three locations do we want to use to host some events or something like that? Um, but the, the baseline is that everyone who's part of the decision-making process has their own preferences about what they would like. So maybe uh, I have my own opinion on, you know, like who I wanted to be president of the United States. And um, I have my own opinion on sort of like projects that should be uh, funded within, say within Princeton or within other communities. Um, but they might be different than you know either of yours, or they might be different than other people who participate. So that's the setup for voting. And then what's a voting rule? A voting rule is just any procedure that takes that information, takes everyone's preferences, and decides what are you going to actually do. So I would say in this language, the elections that we run for president, um, everyone has preferences over who they would like to be president. So maybe I have my candidate A, then candidate B, then candidate C. That's my preferences. And uh, the voting rule that we use is called a uh, plurality. We say whichever candidate has the most uh, first place votes, that's what's selected. Or I guess in the US, we use a uh, plurality to decide who wins each state. And then it's kind of like a weighted plurality. So like depending on which state, you know, we have. Anyway, so we have the electoral college, but um, that I would say is a rule. There's all sorts of other rules you could um, use, but the baseline is uh, you have to select one option and everyone has preferences over the options that you would select. Cool. So um, in terms of the incentives, so the thing I really want to get to is, um, the thing I eventually want to get to is one of the impossibility theorems we saw in class and just kind of, so maybe maybe you could touch on the different components of that theorem. So like incentive compatibility and then kind of eventually get us to the punchline and then we can, we can unpack that a little bit in terms of what it means. Sure. Um, so so since you mentioned incentive compatibility, um, first we can say, so let's think of how elections are done in the US. And for the most part, 
um, in the US in the presidential election, uh, at least for as long as I've been alive, a Democrat or Republican is going to win. Um, and uh, maybe, sorry, maybe uh, uh, there was like uh, one election where there was a reasonable third party candidate that got double digit percentage of votes. Um, but, for, but I was too young then to remember whether people thought he had a serious chance of winning. But for the most part, a Democrat or Republican um, is going to win. So what does that mean? That means that um, you're certainly, if your first choice is a third party candidate, you're absolutely free to report your true first choice vote at the ballot box. Um, but the truth is that probably uh, they're not going to win. And so what that means is it's actually in your interest if you prefer the Democrat versus the Republican that it's probably in your interest to vote for whichever of those two you prefer. And so that's some sense in which uh, the way that we do voting in the US is not incentive compatible. Um, so, so, that, so that's, I would say, incentive compatible. And uh, to build towards the um, theorem you were describing, there is another uh, desirable property of voting rules. So uh, some countries live uh, under dictators and you know the dictator just says, this is what's happening, or I'm the president. And uh, those, at least by US standards, are considered undesirable. So you'd say a, a voting rule is at least not very sophisticated if it's just one person who says, this is what I want to happen, and this is what's going to happen. And it turns out that uh, there's a theorem. So it's called the Gibbard Satterthwaite theorem that says that um, there is no voting rule that is both not a dictatorship and incentive compatible. So what that means is that like, yes, uh, it's you know, definitely reasonable to um, foster, be frustrated with uh, the way that voting is done um, in the US. And it's definitely uh, reasonable to be frustrated with the way that voting is done in you know, other countries. And I would say that just the way to think about it is that it's good to be able to articulate kind of very clearly what is, what is the property that voting in the US has that it shouldn't have or something like that. And unfortunately, what it means is that property is not incentive compatibility because there's no way for us to come up with a better voting rule that is going to be um, incentive compatible um, because there's this theorem, this Gibbard Satterthwaite theorem that just says, you know, unless you're just gonna appoint a dictator, there's no voting rule that's gonna um, achieve that. Matt, do we have any idea of what really drives people to make voting decisions because uh, I mean, in Policy Punchline, our, our podcasting, a lot of our uh, colleagues are very interested in politics. And for them, they, they, they see this politics as, you know, American politics as, as this big gyration that, that, that is a mixture of so many other factors. And when mm. we saw how, uh, you know, the country went from like 2012 to 2016 to 2020, you know, it's very hard to explain a lot of the results of these presidential elections just based on uh, ideological, you know, or, or even polling data or whatever. So, so. It, it, it seems that in, in, is it because of the mechanism? Uh, what, what, I, I don't know. So, um, yeah. So definitely, I think I my hot take is going to be no more informed, uh, certainly than policy experts, <laughs> are, uh, but probably not 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 more informed than anyone else. Um, but uh, uh, since you asked to comment on the mechanisms, I mean, one thing that I I certainly really see is sort of like you know, um, no matter what system is in place it's going to be, um, there's going to be some way to try and uh, game it. So for example, the current electoral college system, the way that uh, people try to game it is, or game it is they campaign like crazy in battleground states. 
um, because that's that's where you need to win the votes. Um, there's a um, you know whatever. So so um, like for example, um, and when I read about all these kind of like crazy things I hear of um, that didn't even occur to me as ways to manipulate it. So like uh, there's you know like uh, I forget who it is. Someone's under investigation for trying to um, recruit a colleague to run in a race because their last name was the same as their opponent or something. And they were hoping to confuse voters. And like, you know, I have no idea how I would mathematically model that, right, as a, as a mechanism designer. But, um, but that is, you know, I mean, like, uh, I definitely don't endorse, that's obviously illegal and terrible and no one should do that. But like, that uh, is another way to just try and like game the system um, and then, of course, there's all this uh, discussion about gerrymandering, right, that you can say, oh, you know, like, you know, at least what's nice is once the districts are made, it's harder to manipulate what's going on there because you need to just win the district, um, you know, but then there's this gaming of how do you, you know, right, like, how do you even make the districts in the first place? Um, and so then that gets gamed, uh, you know, like every 10 years when that happens. Um, and... Yeah, so I don't know. Um, I, I think maybe the 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 mechanism design specific take I want to add is just like due to these kind of it's not entirely due just to these impossibility theorems, but um, there's always something that someone can kind of try and game, and so I think a lot of the um, you know like again other things that people say is sort of like. Uh, the fact that we have primaries is responsible for polarization because you need to win the primary to get the nomination to be, um, you know, to, uh, uh, to even make it to the general election in the first place. Um, and so sort of the idea is that sort of like whatever system we have in place, it's going to change the behavior of the candidates, of the organizations that um, support them. And that definitely can explain a lot of the behavior that we have. And so I do think it's it's uh, good for people to think about um, how can you, you know, consider changing the structure in a way so that we can again have this clear insight for what part of the system causes this specific thing that I don't like, and think about um, uh, ways to change it. Um, but we also do have to be prepared that. Um, yeah, we do have to be prepared that it's always going to maybe be a little bit of this cat and mouse game where sort of like you change the rules one way, people try and manipulate them in one way, and we can try to make them, uh, you know, as non-manipulable as possible, but there will probably always be some, uh, some kind of cheesy, undesirable things going on. Um, so, so actually, I can give you maybe one, one example of something like this that I think went well, is uh, some people you know, don't like the fact that um, if you like a third party candidate, it's very hard to vote for them and not feel like you wasted your vote in um, most most US elections. And so there's a, a different voting rules. And so, um, you know, so we call it like instant runoff voting. And that's a different rule. And so what that rule does is it looks at everyone's uh, first place vote and then it eliminates the candidate with the fewest first place votes. So if there's a third party candidate and they're not gonna win, you can vote for them first, they will get eliminated. And then after they're eliminated, your first place vote shifts to whoever your next choice candidate is. So what you do is you submit a full ranked list of your candidates. And um, Maine, I think has been using this 
I don't remember for how long, I think for maybe four, four or so years. And this is a good example of, you know, it addresses one specific problem, which is if the reason you're nervous about incentive compatibility is because there are third party candidates who are likely to lose, then instant runoff voting is a good way to get rid of this specific problem. Now, it is not incentive compatible. It's still the case that sort of like, if the voting landscape looked very different, there are ways you can manipulate it. But uh, for the specific concern that people have, it's good at addressing that. And um, yeah, and you know, so, so I've read, uh, I've read a little bit of the pop news articles surrounding this and I understand why it's not like a perfect solution gonna fix everyone's problems. But at least again, I would say you have this key insight, which is here's a specific problem. Here's something that solves this specific problem. Let's also analyze what are the possible issues with it. So I like that kind of uh, uh, iterative process of thinking through kind of like one problem at a time, how to make changes. So hearing this, this feels like a really nice example of how a result that's ostensibly purely theoretical can actually lend insight into exactly how to think about these systems in real life. So maybe I kind of want to take a step back and ask, what do you see the role of theoretical research either within computer science or within like economics or like uh, the intersection of economics and computing? What do you see the role of, what do you think is the role of theoretical research in kind of understanding how we engage with these systems in everyday life? Uh, that is a uh, super good question and one I actually really like answering. Um, so the way I think about it is, um, okay, obviously I'm biased, but I think that one of the huge problems with this course in the US is that I think a lot of the discussions are not precise. And so I think a lot of the things that people say complain about or that let, you know, like uh, left versus right and stuff like this, um, like uh, uh, I will not list specific examples because I don't want to, you know, turn this into a lightning rod or anything, but there are definitely examples like I don't know what it means to be pro something or anti something. Um, because a lot of those positions are not precisely defined. And I don't know when I look at a um, specific plan, I don't know, I would love to know what are you claiming precisely will result from this plan? Or when you say you will do something, what precisely are you committing to try and do? And I understand that there are some limits to like, you know, okay, I don't want people to roll out like 10 page lists and we all have to read these 10 pages to understand what's going on. But I think currently things are extremely not precise. And I think what would be uh, helpful in general for discourse is to be able to say kind of like very clear, crisp, precise statements and say, um, this is a property I think a system should have. Okay, and then people can debate. Do you think this property is good? Do you think this property is bad? And maybe as a country, we can get a supermajority to agree that some property is good. And maybe we can get a supermajority to agree that some property is bad or some property is good or something like that. Maybe we can get the country to agree on like a framework for discussing, you know, like, oh, whenever we reach um, decisions that pit, say, uh, uh, privacy against safety, this is the kind of, these are the kinds, this is the methodology we should use to try and address how we feel. And um, I think that theory is very good for that. Um, so I think that there's quantitative theory um, that I like doing, which is very good um, for saying things like, oh, how do you evaluate what would be like the, um, uh, 
uh, what's a good example? Like how would you evaluate say something like uh, a good measure of what does it mean to be have inequality? Like what's some quantitative measure of that or quantitative measure of total wealth or quantity or you know things like that. Um, or maybe even putting together like, oh, here's a model for how humans might behave. Um, so let's use this model to evaluate what might happen under a system. Or let's propose definitions like incentive compatibility or fair or, or like propose formal definitions for these. Um, and I feel like one thing that I find frustrating, uh, kind of like trying to follow a lot of discourse in the US is that um, I really, I, it's hard for me to know what, what is the logical sentiment behind a lot of statements that I hear. Um, and so I feel like uh, that, that for me makes it challenging. So one thing like, for example, that I always try to teach um, in my course, and this is of course, when you're doing math, you have to do this. And it's sometimes I'm the boss so I can make students do it in my course. But I think it's totally fine. You should, you know, you should write proofs and you should write arguments in text. You shouldn't just write sequences of logical statements, but there should be some logical statements you have in mind that kind of map to the sentences you're writing. So like when you write your argument, there should be kind of like a logical flow to what's going on. And it should be feasible for someone to say, oh, when you wrote this, here is the logical thing that you really, really meant, but just didn't write because that's super hard for me to process. And I feel like that's actually just a good way to argue about anything. Um, so like when I, uh, you know, like, like any other person, I argue with my parents and, you know, my siblings about politics. And um, when I argue with them, I do find it really effective to be able to try and, you know, have some logical flow. And then it turns out that at the end of two hours of discussing, we don't agree on everything, but we can point to some progress because we can say, ah, we now understood here's the source of disagreement or here's some property we both agree on. And what we disagree on is whether this policy implements it or here are some facts that we're not aware of. So we both know how we would feel based on the facts, but we need to do some research to understand what the facts are or something like that. Um, so anyway, that was a little bit uh, uh, rambly, but I would say that I think that the value of theory is to be able to provide some precise language or precise frameworks for discussion um, and to try and bring, I would say, more logical structure into um, decisions like this. Uh, Matt, I know we're almost on time. So just kind of uh, zooming out a little bit, uh, I always ask uh, my guests sort of what is the one contrarian view they have uh, <laughs> that others might disagree with them about. I suppose you're very well suited to to do this. I mean, in, uh, in some way, the, the one takeaway I had from this conversation was that uh, by having this logical structure that you, uh, you you trained for and you you this this thinking for mechanism design, you're literally conquering every field. I mean, cryptocurrency, economics, and the voting system. I mean. <laughs> you're taking over everything now. So I don't know. What, 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 what would be one contrarian view you have? Um, good question. Um, I would say, if you limit me to one, um, I would say I am a huge, 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 huge um, fan of transparency in the sense that I really think that while it might be disastrous in the short term to just say, actually, Starting this year, Princeton is going to be super transparent with how it does undergrad admissions, 
right? That like, I think that would be a disaster to just go from no one knows anything to next year, everyone knows a lot of stuff. People are not prepared to deal with that information. But I do think that sort of like um, systems overall would function better if everything were more transparent and everyone kind of had access to kind of like the hard truths, if that made sense. So if people were maybe a little bit more comfortable um, uh, sharing hard truths and people were more comfortable not, um, uh, not uh, jumping on people so aggressively for kind of revealing a hard truth. I think that overall systems would be better. Um, and uh, yeah, so, so that, that's my take. I feel kind of very strongly about that, that I think there's too much uh, lack of transparency in systems. And again, I understand why it's there because as a society, we're kind of like not prepared for that. And I definitely am not comfortable being transparent about literally everything that goes on in my life because I don't want to get jumped on either. Um, but I think that uh, if as a society, we were more comfortable with accepting that uh, there's a lot of hard truths out there, then I think that overall things would uh, uh, function better. So I have a quick question about how you approach. Um, so you've done some very interesting work. So you started in like mechanism design and then you went to crypto and lately you've had some work in machine learning as well. So how do you approach kind of collaborating with people outside kind of your native field, if you will, and then kind of producing meaningful work that intersects with other areas? Um, really, so I love answering uh, this question too. A lot of these, a lot of these questions are like this. Um, so I would say uh, my opinion is that in order to be impactful in a domain, um, unless, uh, so at least for me, maybe there are people who are better at this than I am. For me to be impactful in a domain, I need an expert in that domain to kind of like bring me in. So for cryptocurrencies, that was um, Arvind Narayanan. Um, for the, uh, uh, the, the paper you're referencing that, um, or one of the, some of the papers in machine learning that wound up being um, two uh, students who were experts in experimental deep learning. And um, Tom Griffiths, who was a professor here, kind of dragged me into another paper like that. Um, and I think that that domain expertise is for me, super necessary. And so the way that I've approached branching out into other fields is um, I tried like when I first got to Princeton uh, or like even during my interview, I tried to do like a small tour and just like tell all the uh, people in CITP, uh, the, the Tech Policy Institute here and some of the more applied research in the CS department, I just tried to be like, I'm here, I'm pretty good at reasoning about incentives and I'm interested in working on, uh, you know, like problems that you think are cool for your domain. And like, please come find me. If uh, you ever have problems that uh, come up, I'm excited to learn about your domain and, um, you know, and like uh, see what I can contribute. But I think absolutely, 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 I need the domain expertise to be there with me. Um, and I never try to like replace that myself or do that myself. So I try very hard to have them tell me this is wrong do it this way instead. And I'll be like, oh, okay. As frustrating as that is, I try really hard to accept that I'm going to do things wrong because I'm not an expert in that domain, but, uh, but really try and get dragged by the experts. Uh, Matt, I like how you mentioned Professor Arvind uh, uh, Narayanan. I, I still remember going to a lecture of his, I think my freshman year, and he was introducing us to blockchain technology and Bitcoin. I mean, I, I, back then I didn't really understand what was going on. Had I bought Bitcoin back then, yeah. I mean, <laughs> 
Speaking of <laughs> talking to computer yeah. scientists every day. Uh, I, so, so I guess uh, two quick follow-ups from what, what you were just saying. One was, uh, Sam was asking you about your interdisciplinary connections with people in other fields. Uh, when you interact with, uh, say, economists uh, or, or social scientists, do you feel like they think about their discipline in a certain way where they approach mm -hmm. problems in a, in a certain way that you might disagree with as a computer scientist, someone who is more in the hard sciences rather than the social sciences. So uh, yeah, or, or, or that they, they have certain pitfalls uh, or making uh, certain assumptions or, or. Sure. So I'll, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and do it. So I'll be a little, uh, uh, here's my more, more, maybe more contrarian one. Please, someone, please. Someone could reasonably <laughs> object. So um uh, so, so first I will say, um, I generally, I have a lot of, uh, colleagues who are economists, um, and, uh, overall, like, I think, you know, their field is great. I learn a lot from economists. Um, I would say, you know, I've no, you know, like, uh, uh, I love working with them and, blah, blah, you know, a lot of them are, you know, like some of the smartest people in the map, blah, 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 all that stuff. Um, that being said, I would say the, uh, one kind of like stereotypical thing um, that I, I like to complain about when I read um, some theoretical economics papers sometimes is that I think uh, a lot of them make these kind of like very, 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 very rich models that have like tons of parameters and are really, really trying to capture reality. And I think like what I was saying earlier, um, for, for me that like, it, it like really drives me crazy from a theoretical perspective. Because sometimes I just think like I read these papers and there's so many mod there's so many parameters and I just think, how am I going to learn any like how am I going to learn anything I can't even I can't even remember what all these parameters mean and I can't figure out how if I change this one parameter what do I learn from that and stuff like that. So that I would say is maybe like a, a pet peeve. This is definitely not like a ubiquitous within economics. There are lots of economists who write different styles of papers and um, this is not uh, you know I, I don't know that. And, and there are benefits of this kind of research too. But if I were to pick something that I kind of look at that I just say like, oh man, I just really cringe every time I see research like this. That's kind of like one thing that at least for me, I was ever, I was never able to really appreciate that, that I really much prefer the um, deep insights in simple models where I can actually understand really what's going on. Um, and would you say that the truly insightful models are more like outcomes razor where you know, it could really get to the yeah. core of the problem with even simplest equations. Correct. Maybe. Correct. And I think like, um, and I think for what it's worth, that is recognized in that like the works I'm aware of that kind of like led to Nobel prizes in economics are very, very elegant models. Um, so like all the work that I do in auction theory follows from um, seminal work of like Vickery, Clark and Grove. Or, uh, so Vickery got the Nobel prize from that group. And then um, uh, Roger Meyerson got a Nobel prize um, uh, for also laying the foundations of um, uh, specifically the kind of auction design that I work in. And those models are super elegant. Um, they're very, very clean. There's like, you know, one mathematical parameter and you can really dive into how does changing this parameter um, change the questions or change, change the, the uh, results and stuff like that. And so I think um, that, kind of, that kind of stuff I really, uh, uh, I re I really, really love. Um, but yeah, so I say if, if if you force me to kind of say say something, um, that's that's the thing I would uh, that's the thing I would pick. Yeah, uh, we, we, I know we don't have time to go into all the details, but I I, I mentioned my regret of not following uh, <laughs> Professor uh, Narayana's yeah. uh, lecture. So here I would have to uh, ask you, what are some of the exciting innovations that you see 
in the crypto space or the blockchain space uh, from a technical perspective, not, not in terms of price predictions, but for a lot of people outside the space, they see this either as a speculative bubble or they see this basically as a whole scam. I, I still remember, I think like three years ago, either JP Morgan CEO, Jamie Dimon, all those Wall Street titans were saying, oh, this is all a scam, blah, blah, blah. So whereas nowadays I feel like things are getting more institutionalized. People are feeling yeah. like more innovative. So from a technical perspective, do you, where do you think we're at right now? Um, yeah, so I, I really think that, um, I really think that uh, getting these um, kind of like incentive compatible and uh, secure proof of stake protocols. I really think that, um, I really, really think that that stuff can, I think that that's not quite there, but I think that there's a lot of really promising developments that happened recently. Um, so like uh, one that I've been following more closely is um, Algorand, uh, just because that was, you know, like the one of the uh, founders of that was um, on my thesis committee at MIT and someone who I knew pretty well. Wow. And, so I was like, wow, and he's a Turing Award winner now. And so I was like, okay, Silvio Macaulay is getting into this. I'm gonna, and he's, he was pretty, and he was really serious about it. Um, so he worked really hard on that. And I was like, if he's gonna do it, I'm gonna watch, <laughs> you know, like I'm gonna watch what happens. That's um, the cryptocurrency algorithm. Correct, yeah. And then, um, and so their, their view was sort of like, um, at least at the time, I think he was kind of the most, uh, for his background, he was kind of like, you know, with like a strong theory background. And sort of like, and his Turing Award has nothing to do with Algorand too. That like he has a super strong background in theoretical cryptography and um, and mechanism design and game theory too. And so uh, for someone like that to kind of decide that he really wanted to prioritize actually, you know, developing a protocol, I think um, that was a huge step to get people like him interested in um, doing this. And uh, and now I know that um, there's a lot more engagement with sort of like the research community that I'm a part of. Um, not necessarily in designing precise cryptocurrencies, but in being engaged with people from Ethereum and um, trying to understand the questions they have related to incentives and stuff like that. So I think sort of like, so that, that for me is like one exciting development is just um, people like that getting, really getting interested and really diving in. People um, from traditional kind of uh, pedigrees yeah. coming into this space. To, to... Yeah, yeah. Or I would say people who have an extremely strong background that I think is relevant, but previously was not well represented. I, I, maybe that's another way to put it. So I don't think, for example, that that background without the distributed systems that came before it, I don't think that would be like, oh, it's like theory versus distributed systems. But I think there was a lot of distributed systems expertise and that um, that kind of jolt for me felt very exciting um, to, see, uh, to see that kind of make its way in. Um, but yeah, so so I really think that uh, that for me is what I see as kind of like the next um, most exciting thing. And then maybe the second thing I can say that I'm much less experienced with, but I think this idea when people talk about like layer two blockchains, the idea that sort of like, um, you know, we can't all, right? Like we don't have one government for the whole world, right? And like, you know, that's just horribly impractical that we don't, you know, and, and realistically we don't need one. Right, and I would say same thing for uh, uh, cryptocurrency. We don't need literally one ledger that stores every single transaction that everyone in the world is doing. And so this concept of layer two is saying that like, well, we need to find some way so that people in one community can have their own, you know, have their own thing, and we can functionally, with uh, much less communication, 
update this global ledger with just a little bit of information that comes from this community and and uh, things like that. So I think that will also be a pretty major development when that kind of like matures. But that is further outside my research area. So I'm kind of following that as like a, a interested onlooker rather than someone who can really understand the, excuse me, the technical developments that are coming there. Layer 2, Ethereum 2.0, all that stuff. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it, it, it sounds fascinating. We, we don't have time to go into it. I don't want to take more, more of your time, Matt. Uh, by the way, you mentioned you, uh, you're, you're also working alongside Blockstack. That, that, that... Uh, so, sorry, so I, I should say I previously consulted for them uh, once. So I'm not currently working with them. If they asked me to review another proposal, I would happily do it. It was a good experience. But um, but uh, basically when they, uh, they were introducing a token a few years ago um, and they, um, uh, one, one of the founders was a PhD student princess. We have some connections here. Um, and so I looked at their white paper and just gave some brief feedback on kind of like what are the, uh, and you know, possible incentive issues that might come up. Um, and are they and, also a, a startup or? or uh... Correct. So I think, uh, oh man, what do I remember? But so uh, they are definitely a startup. Um, as far as I know, fairly successful. I don't, or actually, I don't know what counts as successful by startup standards, but like the amount of funding they have, it sounds like a big number to me. Um, so I think what they're, um, uh, I probably shouldn't try to repeat what their, their uh, mission is because I'm going to botch it because it's, it's more uh, focused on <laughs> the distributed systems and uh, uh, that aspect more so than the stuff that I'm uh, knowledgeable about. But um, yeah, so that's, that's maybe a good example where I had some, I was able to get access to some interesting questions from industry because these people from Blockstack were willing to talk to me and explain what they were trying. And I was able to learn about um, uh, what people are trying to do in this space. Um, and, I, and I think that's exactly the kind of relationship I like. They had a specific problem. I hope I was helpful to them, but uh, I kind of addressed one narrow thing that I tried to give them some key insight for. And then, um, you know, think issues have not come up since then. So I haven't uh, been in touch with them or know how things go, but you know, I hope that in general kind of groups in that situation um, find someone with my expertise uh, helpful for giving insight for things like this. This is all just so fascinating, Matt. I, I know we have already uh, taken way too much of your time. So at the end, uh, in, in the tradition of our show, we always ask our guests what their, pol what their policy punchline would be, what their punchline is, since the mm -hmm. name of our show is Policy Punchline. So what would your punchline be for today's uh, interview? Um, um, I guess I would say maybe uh, let's go with uh, incentives matter. <laughs> Absolutely. And can go with that. how can people follow more about your work? Are you on Twitter or? Uh... Uh, no, so I, uh, well, actually, okay. So uh, I made a Twitter account just so <laughs> that I could follow the vac the New Jersey vaccine Twitter account so I could find out the, <laughs> when I could get an appointment. Um, so I, may, I, I own a Twitter account, but uh, I have not, I have no intention of tweeting anything, at least in the near future. Um, I am, uh, uh, I tried to keep my website reasonably up to date. So that's through, um, uh, if you just uh, Google my name, uh, Matt Weinberg Princeton, it should be one of the first websites that comes up. There's unfortunately a child actor with the same name who might come up before me, but <laughs> eventually you'll get to there. And um, my email is available on my website. I'm generally pretty responsive um, to emails. Yeah. All, all my friends say you, you've just been an amazing mentor. One of our friends, yeah. Arjun, reached out to you uh, for, for grad school advice and, and uh, and, and he said you just spent an hour with him. It's just so so wonderful of you to, to also spend this much time talking to Seon and, and me today. So uh, yeah, Matt, thank, thank you so much for, for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me.
Thanks, and Sayan, th thanks so much for, for joining me uh, and co-hosting this interview. Yeah, thanks for having me. Thanks so much, Matt. Learned a lot from this. Yeah. Well, well, and this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Please visit us on policypunchline.com. You may watch this video on YouTube and listen to this on iTunes, Spotify, any of your preferred platform. That was uh, with Matt Weinberg, an assistant professor in computer science at Princeton. It was just a fascinating conversation. Uh, we encourage you to follow his work, and we'll see you next time. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.